there, Green Future Growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Hey, everyone. I just hung up with Justin Rohner, but I, after I hung up, I remembered to ask him about where'd they get these cool, he has these awesome kale, yeah, t-shirt he's wearing. And he said that they make them and you can order one on his website. So just another reason to go there. Really cool kale, yeah, t-shirts. Welcome to the Organic Gardener podcast today. So I am super excited to introduce my guest because he's got so much going on and he's a presenter and a speaker and um, just somebody I know we're going to get tons of golden seeds from and learn lots from. So his business is called Agriscaping and from Gilbert, Arizona, here's Justin Rohner. So welcome to the show, Justin. Thanks, Jackie. Well, go ahead and tell listeners a little bit about yourself. I mean, uh, I guess at some point you'll explain what agriscaping is. And then I didn't even realize you had a restaurant. So somehow I missed that on your website. Oh, well, that's okay. We usually don't promote it too much because of everything else we're doing. We didn't want to you know, fill in that space. But we serve a number of restaurants here in the Phoenix area. And about me and who I am, I, I, I'm a bit of a serial entrepreneur, but have recently honed in my skills to put all my eggs in one basket which is this agriscaping.com, this whole movement that's happening. And, uh, you know, I'm all about improving local food economies, strengthening families and strengthening communities. And that's a lot of what I do. So anything I'm up to usually fits into those categories and has been for at least the last couple of decades for myself. Okay. Well, I think we'll get into that in a little bit, but do you want to go yeah. ahead and tell listeners about your very first gardening experience? Like, were you a kid? Were you an adult? Who were you with? What did you grow? Did you grow up well, in Arizona? First, I grew up mostly in Arizona. I started off actually, I was born in Virginia, Alexandria, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. My dad was in the FBI. And, uh, and so my memories there, you know, I remember a forest. I remember living in a forest, and when I went back and visited, it was like maybe four trees thick just before a big, busy road. But, you know, a little kid, you, you, you think you've got a forest in your backyard, and it's nothing but, but a couple of trees. And we moved to Arizona when I was pretty young. And so my first gardening experience really is what I recall is being in the garden with my mom as a little kid. I was probably about five years old and uh, and peas. Just I remember the pea plant. I remember looking at the pea plant and, and seeing this caterpillar crawling across the pea plant and just just observing all that and taking it all in. Everything felt like it was slow motion. I felt I was like this tiny little thing in the in the garden and I could be with this little caterpillar as it's crawling across these peas and just studying it and just be so, I was just so infatuated by everything about how plants grew and that we can eat this stuff. And my mom's sitting there telling me how the caterpillar turns into the cool butterflies. And I mean, there was a lot of just, a lot of storyline on it. And oddly enough, it was about the same time of year it is right now that we're doing this recording when that whole scene kind of played itself out. And from then on out, you couldn't get me back inside. Um, my mom would yell at the top of her lungs and couldn't even, I couldn't hear her because I was so just kind of, kind of just engrossed in, in how life worked outdoors. And so that, I guess that's, that's my first experience. And it, it, it continues to, I continue to expand upon that. I guess that first passionate experience being in the garden and what it tasted like to just eat something that had grown and just be amazed at all the intricacies of how everything worked. So I've been curious ever since. 
You know, I think a lot of my listeners are going to really relate to that story, and I bet they have found themselves just totally engrossed in the garden, either as kids or still as adults, and just can imagine themselves. Um, just like the way you explained that was really cool. I'm sure lots of people had like, you know, memories like nostalgia and different things. So is that how you learned how to garden organically, like from your mom or just like as an adult or like, how did you come to organic gardening? Well, back then, you know, back backyard gardening really was, there was only organic gardening back then. So I guess to learn how to do it was what my mom did. You know, we, we had our own compost piles. We turned our own stuff. You know, my grandpa owned a, uh, a dairy farm it was the last dairy farm in tempe arizona same place where a- arizona state university resides and and uh, so we had that little dairy farm in the family but uh, so seeing all that stuff work it was it was kind of normal almost too normal and that was that was something that kind of distracted me a lot from being making this a profession or making this a real part of my life is because it was so normal i think as a kid you know, the organic was just kind of the normal thing. It was like the easy stuff. And uh, I was kind of interested in all the tech stuff because my grandpa started getting more into the hormone treatments and stuff like that and was belittled by you to use organic methods. And so I watched my family, you know, the, that family business kind of shift the way of all the world as it were. And, and he ended up selling that off in the mid 80s. And uh, but I always loved the organic method. It seemed easier. It was a lot less expensive, too. And so personally, I always grew in an organic fashion, uh, doing everything as natural as I could. But really, it was in my mind, it was because it was cheaper. And I wasn't trying to run a big commercial enterprise. I was just doing my own little garden. I didn't need all that other techie stuff. I just just grew the stuff the way I knew how to grow it and kept it simple and easy for myself. So tell listeners what agriscaping is now, then. Well, agriscaping is is a blend of the best of productive agriculture with the best of ornamental landscaping. And so it's that, that kind of play on words. It's agriscaping. So we're literally integrating all of agriculture, not just food, but also ornamental plantings and things like that. The things that we do that are productive. So growing production into a landscape and having it integrated in such a way that makes it not only easy to maintain, but easily integrated into the local economy. So the majority of what we do is integrating of local food into the local food economy, but we also work with other textiles and also working with, with other foods for, for fodder, for animals and things like that. And I mean, the, the, the types of things we're growing to, um, are different than what you would expect. I mean, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, where the temperatures, you know, get in the 120s. And still in the wintertime, I mean, right now, you know, the temperature was down below freezing this morning when I woke up this morning, which is kind of weird, but that's kind of how deserts work. And then the high today is going to be 71. So we've got a good 30, almost 40 degree difference in temperature between the beginning of the day and the end of the day. And, and um, Do plants like uh, that or does that make it harder for things to grow? It's, it makes it a little challenging. I mean, with that, that flux, like for instance, right now, we know that we're still heading into some freezes, but this morning I was looking at one of our client houses dropped by and we were checking out some of the trees and their, their desert gold peach was already starting to bloom. And I'm like, uh Oh, and we just say, uh Oh, it's because you know, it might be still a little too, we might still have some freezes that those blooms might end up producing the fruit and then it freezes and it's going to lose all of its fruit. And it could really damage the production for that particular tree type because it's a little too early in its in, in its cycle. And then in the extreme heat, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, we our break of the year is actually between June and August. That's where we back off most of our, our planting and growing because it's so extremely hot 
that there's so that's where the major stress is on most of the plants here in the Phoenix area. Although we still can grow things throughout that entire season as well and be very productive, like sweet potatoes and sunflowers, uh, Jerusalem artichokes. There's a lot of cool things that we can grow uh, very well through the heat of the summer as well. But yeah, relatively speaking, it's a break. I like all of this. I'm working on a course right now for listeners that's kind of like called grow, you know, like an organic oasis. So it kind of combines a lot of what you're saying, like food and um, landscaping together. One of the things I saw yeah. on your website that looked really interesting was your edible flowers. Do you want it like you have an edible flower guide? I'm like, you have all sorts of classes on your website, right? Oh, yeah. We got a ton of different classes. And a lot of them are focused, again, in that elegant, edible approach to things. And then how we integrate that in the food economies. I mean, there's so many different techniques out there. A lot of cool technology. I mean, we're blending technology with traditional practices, but then also design and, and a lot of the art. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of artist in me, and I can't help but make things look good. And that has actually helped us get into a lot of places. Like, I mean, having restaurant gardens in Scottsdale, like we do, the way we even got that approved was to be able to align the beauty. And one of the greatest, easiest ways to integrate beauty is with flowers. And so with the flowers, you know, we've got begonias out there right now, wonderful edible flower. Our restaurants love to work them into their salads and work them into even some of their drinks. You know, um, there's so many pansies and, and uh, the violas this time of year. It's like when it's cool season, the petunias, also great ones that we love to throw in salads and things. And so the edible flower, you can check out that edible flower guide at agriscaping.com. It's a great way to, to get to know what types of flowers are edible. So can I it also you saves question? you a lot of time. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Do they have to be like special? Like you can't just eat any petunia that you buy off the street. Or like if you buy a basket of petunias at a nursery that you don't know how they're grown, can you just eat any petunia? That's a great question, and I would be careful with where you get it. You want to know the sourcing because in the industry for flowers, especially things like petunias, pansies, even begonias, and especially the begonias, they'll use what's what's called a systemic uh, pesticide. And a systemic pesticide is one that they'll either spray on the plant or they'll put it as little granules in the start that then it uptakes inside the plant itself, and if anything tries to eat it, any bug or anything, it kills the bug. And so it's in the cellular level. It's, it's the entire system of the plant is infused with the pesticide. And that is not something you want to eat. It will cause some significant digestive challenges for you if you're eating a, an edible flower or any, any plant that has a systemic pesticide uh, integrated with it. So it is very important to ensure that you're getting stuff from what I would say, get an organically grown sourced uh, edible flower. And, you know, here in the Phoenix area, we've built some great relationships with our nurseries and with any of our agriscaping pros nationally. If they're connected with an agriscaping hub, those hubs will actually have preferred nursery sourcing that are growing the way that is beneficial to us to eat it. And so it's very, very uh, system supported, I guess you could say, that you can you can trust the sourcing uh, as, as long as you're coming from that kind of agriscaping certified sourcing. And we had to create that sourcing ourselves because it didn't exist in the marketplace. I mean, edible flowers and organically edible flowers, you know, doesn't really exist. It's not really a, a channel, but through agriscaping, we've been able to establish that. So do you want to tell, because like, a lot of my listeners are entrepreneurs and, you know, innovators and people who are like interested in getting into, you know, expanded. They've been growing for five or 10 years. They have a fairly substantial side garden and they're interested in getting into, um, 
not always necessarily selling at the market. So you have a certification. Is that so like people can learn how to go build gardens in other people's homes? Is that what that work or like, what is the certification process about? So there's, there's actually five different certifications that we offer. Uh, we have one for the do-it-yourselfer and all of our pro level all have to go through the do-it-yourself stuff. So it's an agriscaping mastery program. So it teaches you all the aspects, I mean, from outdoor to indoor and all the integrations and how we work that stuff, how to understand microclimates, which helps expand your seasons without hoop houses and a lot of other things. And microclimate technology is a key component to a lot of what we do with agriscaping to integrate the beauty no matter what the uh, shade orientation or sun orientation is on your property or in your landscape or in your forest, whatever it is, you can grow food. And so the AMP Agriscaping Mastery Program is the first certification. And then we have educator certifications. So all across the country, we have people starting to now create these little teaching platforms. And we have a whole coaching, garden coaching system that we teach our ACEs so they can get out and be a consultant for families and to do it in a very economically feasible way. So helping them those families become productive and actually be able to sell their produce is something that they can do and teach. Then we got design certifications. We, we do design from people that have never done design before but are very interested in it all the way up to people that are landscape architects and have been a landscape architect for 30 years. Add our certification on as a new, a new component that allows them to expand their offering and really create a, a very professional approach. Um, then we've got the the contractor certification, so agriscaping certified contractors, where we work with licensed contractors that can actually implement those those designs and build these machines. Because ultimately, an agriscape, when designed right, is a machine that not only looks amazing, it's easy to maintain, and again, it produces revenue for the homeowner. And we actually rank our gardens now based on their productivity relative to the expense associated with it. So we have silver gardens, an 18-carat garden with a C, and a 24 carat gardens that, and each of those rankings uh, really qualify what kind of productivity you can expect out of a garden that's designed the way we do it and installed the way we do it and then maintained the way our agriscaping certified garden pros can do. So our AGPs, which is another certification that we offer. And then we have the harvesters, which each of these have their own business model. Uh, we teach a little class called uh, seven ways to garden and get paid. And so some of these certifications are part of those seven ways to garden and get paid, but there's also a lot of other ways that a do-it-yourselfer can garden and get paid. I started off as a hobbyist uh, who grew enough and grew it in such a way that it attracted enough income to pay for my crazy hobby, and I could keep going out and buying plants. And at first, that's all it was, but then more and more people kept asking how I did it, what I did, and then it turned into another little facets, and then it expanded what I did. So this really all started from a hobby that I chose to start making it more of a professional hobby and now it's turned into literally my entire career and vocation and now it's its own it's its own industry basically is what's really pulling out of it and that's what we've built in these certification programs is is a, a shorter trip a shorter journey for anybody who'd like to get involved to get there a lot quicker than it obviously took us to do it because I started doing this in 2001 on the the professional hobby side i guess you could say and since then we've built it to what it is today and it's it's taking leaps and bounds this year this is a an amazing and great year to kind of get involved if if you'd like to get involved with stuff like what we're doing with agriscaping because of how we've developed the system and how the hub systems are working and how scalable we found it to be no matter where you live because a lot of the new tech we've brought to it uh, and garden planning software and other things like that so 
some of the things that I think are on a really good upside to the, like, you don't have to own your own land to follow one of these business models, right? Like you're actually doing it right. on other people's. Cause that seems to be a mm-hmm. huge barrier for a lot of, um, gardeners and want to be farmers and people who want to start like a green business is that if they don't own their own property. Um, so I think this is going to, you know, break down those barriers and like enable a lot of other people. And then as you're probably like talking about, there's just a bigger interest. People are like, you're finally hearing little bits on the news about climate change and you're finally hearing people talk about, you know, food insecurity on the news more. And just, I think people are becoming, you know, when the millennials are getting older and they're, they've always kind of been a generation interested in it, I guess is what I think I, you mm-hmm. might. Anyway, do you want to tell us about something that grew well this year? Like, do you, so do you have a garden at your house now or like, where do you even garden at? <laughs> so I definitely have a garden at my house. I have a little, it's a quarter acre property in a, in a, in a subdivision, very strict HOA driven uh, subdivision, but in my garden, uh, in, even in my quarter acre, I have more than 72 fruit trees that I grow in the garden and in the backyard. But I've still got a, a, a few thousand square feet of grass because I found my kids tend to grow really well in grass better than in my garden. You know, they've got a bad you know, net set up in the backyard right now, and that's very useful to the function of my home. But we also have a trampoline garden, a subterranean garden underneath the trampoline. You go stairway down there, and we've got terraced gardens under there where we grow a lot of shade loving edibles and a lot of fun things that we can do with that but in the garden itself i think this year one of my favorite things that we grew in our garden was uh, jamaican hibiscus or yamaka um man that thing grew amazing it loves the heat and produces that uh it's a wonderful it's a wonderful I, i don't even remember what we call the the uh the roselle that's what it's called the roselle so it produced that nice wonderful edible flower, but we don't eat the flower. We let it actually turn into this roselle that is encasing the seed pod. And the outer parts of that roselle is what we actually eat. And my kids call it the, the, the healthy sour patch kid because the petals on that roselle are loaded with a lot of nutrients. They're, they're pretty sour, almost lemony sour, but then it's got this deep red color and this wonderful flavor to it. It's the same stuff they make red zinger tea with. Oh. And uh, hibiscus lemonade is often made with it as well. You can make a lemonade literally out of that without any lemons at all. You just use these hibiscus leaves or the uh, the roselle the roselle um, petals, I guess you could call. Them. And that they grew amazing. Our restaurants loved them. They integrated them into a number of different drinks. So we grew them out at the restaurants as well. And um, the leaves you can also eat the leaves on that thing. Very, it's a sour leaf, and it's a really fun add to a salad. And then the other part that I loved about it, it was kind of a uh, a triple a triple crown type plant for me because you had or even a quadruple crown we've got the flower you've got the roselle kind of the fruit and then you've got the leaves you could eat and then the stalk itself is a good fiber it's just as good as jute and you can create a lot of you can make fiber ropes so we're actually using the harvest from this summer of all the stalks and we're actually making our twine that we then wrap our veg in to sell at the markets and so we're actually using the stuff we're growing and just recycling it all back into our system and we love it so yeah a quadruple crown of a plant that we were able to grow this year wow that's awesome well lots of great information and ideas there um so does that grow in other places besides arizona like florida and california does it grow in texas too or just is that like a local plant to where you are 
No, it's one that you can grow pretty much anywhere where it's warm. I mean, where, where you've got some good warmth and you've got a good, it's about a four-month timeline in terms of where you needed to have it. If you got four months above 70 degrees, that thing will grow well for you. Mm, that doesn't sound too bad. Yeah. yeah, it's not too bad at all. And it can take the, the hottest, sunniest spot. And what I'd recommend is if the seed, growing it via seed initially and letting it grow from seed or a seedling that's no more than, has no more than four leaves on it, that's going to, you're going to have the greatest success with a plant that's transplanted in its early phases or just be a seed with this particular plant. Because if you do it later, it stunts its growth. And these things can grow. I mean, ours were growing out at the restaurant gardens. I think we had them up about four feet high and we made a big old row. So it made this beautiful hedge of uh, green with it's kind of the leaves have a little bit of a red hue to them as well. So it's, it's a very pretty plant, almost serrated leaf, but they keep a nice round shape. And then they got the cool flowers, and then you'll see all these deep red. The stalks are very deep red, and so you got the green leaf, dark red stems. Really fun plant. Cool. So is there something you're excited to try next year that you haven't done before, or something new you're going to do? Ooh, well, um, we I guess I'm always trying new stuff. Different varieties of melons, that's some things we're looking at right now. There's a, a Santa Claus-type melon. Um, we accidentally invented another melon. We're going to see if it works again this year. We call it a, a cucalope. And what it was was an unintentional cross between a, an Armenian cucumber and a, a, a type of heirloom uh, cantaloupe that we grew. And what ended up happening, uh, they cross-pollinated, and then we ended up with these seeds out of the melon, and we replanted them. And it's this elongated um, cantaloupe. It's, it's literally, it looks like a cantaloupe on the outside, but it's, it's elongated. So just imagine kind of taking, the, taking a cantaloupe and then stretching it out. So about the size of a large zucchini, but it still looks like a, a, a it still has that, the, the netting on the cantaloupe. And then when you slice it up, it actually had a, it was a great, it's almost like a sour, almost a sour melon kind of flavor. It was really awesome on salads with a nice little vinaigrette, added that pop of nice orange color, so very bright orange interior. Mm -hmm. But it was a kind of a sour, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It was its own melon. And uh, again, accidental, but Interesting. Fun. I like that though. That sounds good and um, something different to try because salads can get kind of boring at times. Yeah. I eat a lot of salads. How about something that didn't work so well or didn't turn out the way you thought it was going to? Well, I think for us, it's always a matter of location. You know, oh. the microclimates and understanding where the microclimates are. For instance, we, we have a finger lime. We really love the Australian finger lime. And we anticipated that it would be able to work in a, in a C zone. We thought the C zone was going to be one of the best zones for it with a lot of warmth. But the C zone, just if you don't know the microclimates, it's... Um, gets morning shade, but then gets afternoon sun and often has some reflected heat. The, we figured that it was a type of plant that actually would work similar to other plants we've gotten from Australia. And uh, we were wrong. We were dead wrong. Uh, it actually needs to be on the other side of the house with a morning sun. We call it a microclimate, morning sun, afternoon shade. And unlike all the other citrus we have, this one likes to be wet all the time, as opposed to drying out a little bit between waterings the 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 finger lime likes to just be wet all the time almost more like an, an avocado or a, a, even on the same schedule that we're doing our bananas in some of these spaces but awesome plant uh, but again in the wrong location a, a huge disappointment 
and uh, and that's another key cause, and that's another interesting thing it's like even though that you might have a planting calendar for your area and it specifically excludes some things it's likely that they've just never tested it in a different microclimate and what you could do with it and that's what we found as well to be true that you've got a, a relative difference between 20 and 30 degrees in temperature around your property just based on the microclimates and how it relates to the sun and the shade but then you've also what that does is it expands your your climate zone that you can then grow from so you can usually go plus or minus two zones and be able to find plants that'll grow in your area so no matter where you are if you're using microclimates correctly you don't just have to buy stuff in the zone where you live you can actually expand out again two in both directions on on what you can grow viably at at your garden and at your home wow i never heard anybody talk about this before and i was like i'm so curious like so how did you figure that out? Do you test all your products or like like it wasn't doing thriving so you moved it or like what made you try it on the other side of the house? Well, and that that's what we do. So we're literally, we do, we plant what I, and I've been doing it for years ever since I started playing around with this. In, in 2001, I moved into my first house with me and my wife and it just happened to be, uh, we literally closed on the house on 9-11. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we were really... Uh, Things didn't feel safe. Sure. Food didn't feel safe. You know, nothing was working. And so I was adamant that I was going to find a way to grow the food at my yard. And I was I had the worst microclimates ever. Like there was nothing full sun in my yard. It was so small, a lot of you know, in the end of a cul-de-sac. And every all my best places to grow was in the front yard. And that was the one that the HOA holds in most scrutiny. And so I had to find a way to integrate things in and grow stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay, forget the calendar. I'm just gonna start planting things I like. And I'm going to plant them like every week and I'm going to plant them in like every location and I'm going to see what works and when and why and how. And so we do. And, and since that time, I continue to track. And anytime I plant something new, I'm going to plant it not only at varying times during the year outside of the normal calendar. We're also testing it in those six different microclimates. And at one point I had 24 different microclimates, but realized that's too hard to remember. It's certainly too hard to train. And so we narrowed it down to six major microclimates that any yard has. And then we started reclassifying how things grow in each of those and creating a calendar basically for each one of those in pretty much any location in the, in the, in the nation. So we based it all around frost calendars, just like most of our other stuff does. But now we've increased your planting schedules by six times because the traditional planting calendar in every, in every municipality is a B zone calendar, which is a full sun space. But what we found is that there's, there's five other places you can grow in. And so we've multiplied the, the potential as well as expanded the opportunity in your varieties of things that you can grow in your yard. And that's by like moving them by like putting them either by like a stone wall or by like shady, like a non, like, is that how you're changing all these places? I guess. Yes, it's kind of expanding it. Like, for instance, you know, I can get a jump on, you know, I, I can already start growing melons right now in a C zone because it's got that afternoon sun, but it's also got a reflected light and some radiant heat coming from my west facing yard. And so it ends up warmer. It's always warmer and stays warmer than the east side of my house, which would be kind of the A zone. And so I can get a jump on my summer season from that space. But the other cool part is, is that I can extend my season for my winter stuff on the other side, on the A zone. And so where I would normally have to stop, let's say, in, in uh, March, 
with a lot of my greens growing, I can extend all the way into June with my traditional lettuces by just growing in my A zone as opposed to my full sun B zone. And so I can literally end up getting greens year round, even though that you, you know, technically according to all farming data out there, it shouldn't work. But the reality is, is that farms work in one zone, B. It's always full sun. That's the optimal place to grow. And so all their timelines are based on that and that alone. And so a lot of cool things that we've done with the tech and created some, our garden planning software, actually it's integrated into that now. We teach it all in the mastery course too, so the people can really figure out and map out their entire yard and then be able to easily schedule things in to, to rotate their crops in a way that improves the soil and extends their season. And I think that's what makes your course super valuable to people because then if they can go into communities and teach others how to do that, um, that's going to make them a more, you know, like viable business, things like that. It just gives them a jump on so many other traditional practices that are out there. And, And here's kind of a cool thing to think about. So in terms of to give you a rough estimate on what your yard is worth in its productive value. Look at your square feet that you have, and it doesn't matter if it's in full shade or full sun. It doesn't matter to the agriscaping modality because, you know, we've even got over 300 varieties of edibles you can grow in full shade. So just if you think there's – if you doubt the ability to grow things, there's, there's tons of things you can grow in every one of these microclimates. But a number that you can put to paper and kind of figure out for yourself is that for every month that you can grow in, you know, any month that's not freezing, you, it's worth about a dollar per month per year per square foot so if i've got 100 square feet well and i can only grow in one month of the year i can basically produce about a hundred dollars worth of produce but if you look at it and i've got you know if i've got 10 months out of the year i can grow which is an accurate assessment here in arizona i can then in one square foot i can grow ten dollars per year in that one square foot so if i've got 100 square feet now that's worth 10 times that now i've got a thousand dollars of production i can do in one thousand square feet and then if I look at my full garden and my landscape, it's like if I've got an acre, this is where the numbers get really psycho. If I only did, if I only did half of that, you know, an acre is 43,560 square feet. But if I just look at, if I just did 20,000 square feet on a $10 per, per, uh, per square foot per year, I've now got a good $200,000 revenue source of production that I can create out of my garden. And still it would look good because only 50% of it is food. The rest can be integrated into cool pathways and I can have my house on it and I can do all this stuff. So our production capacity is greatly enhanced with the use of microclimate tech as well as a lot of the techniques that we use uh, in design to engineer the space to make it easy to maintain and you don't need anything but hand tools. I mean the whole system that we do runs off hand tools. Well, it definitely sounds worth it. It sounds so interesting. I love the way you have all the numbers and your data. Like, I'm kind of a data junkie, but you're making me feel like <laughs> I'm not really that big of a data junkie after all. Um, yeah, I'm kind of an engineer nerd. That's My, my grandfather impressed upon me the need to not be in, in agriculture. He said you can't make money in agriculture. And part of his reasoning was is because he was planning on selling the farm, which he did. And so I got into engineering, and uh, that engineering really did train me a lot. I really loved the numbers and then integrating the same engineering concepts into how we've even researched and developed this agriscaping modality. And that's uh, – you're exactly right. I, I love the numbers game on, on how things grow and, and, and creating a science out of it so it's more repeatable. Excellent. And you're going to sp- – like, I found you because you're speaking in New York about this, right? Because a lot of my listeners are in New York. If they 
wanted to like learn more aren't you going to be at the um or is it over the new york conference that one i think is over now but uh, there's always another conference we're likely going to be at i will be in new york actually this summer we're going on a bit of a a bit of a tour and so get in the loop on what we're doing we're even going to be up in maine and minnesota we've actually got some agriscaping pros that are growing their networks in different parts of the country even in minnesota and maine so and in New York. And so we're going to be there uh, this summer and I'll be touring around. So I'd, I'd love to be able to connect with wherever your people are. If you got a lot of people in New York, I'd love to connect with them. Well, cool. So they would just sign up probably for your email and then you'll be sending out notifications where you're going and keep up with your schedule and things like that. Exactly. They'll be able to see the schedule that we've got. We also do a lot of free online classes. We do a couple of them a month. And uh, those are usually nationwide or internationally, and so you can get on those. And then any local course that's near them, they'll be able to get access to those as well and see see what's going on. Cool. All right. Well, this is the part of the show we call Getting to the Root of Things, which is kind of like a lightning round on other podcasts. So just like, do you have a least favorite activity, something you have to force yourself to get out there and do in the garden? Um, I guess pest management. I, I'm not a big fan of it, uh, so I, it's my least favorite thing because I'm always hoping that I'm growing things well enough that they don't attract the pests that I might have to get rid of because I like to see the balance in the garden. I don't mind seeing a bug here and there, but if they're going so bad that they're creating little nets and they're, and they're literally sucking the life out of my plants, well, that's, that's my least favorite thing to do because I'm killing two things, my plant and I'm killing, my, and I'm killing the bugs and the, and the creatures that are trying to just help. They're just doing the best they know how. Uh, do you have any tips for listener? Like just a really short, like one quick, like tip for like how to deal with pests at all. Well, I'd say a a plant positive approach prevents pests every time. Like keeping your plants healthy. Yep, keeping your plants healthy and soil is the first step. If you can keep your soil healthy in a in a very natural way, an organic way. You know, improving the soil by just adding more nutrient and, and supporting that, you're going to support the health of the plant. And that healthy plant is going to create that little extra waxy coating on their extra their cells. They'll have more little fibers that are on there too that prohibit plants from eat, or bugs from eating too much of them. They don't put off the type of hormones that then attract the bugs. I mean, there's so many things that happen when a plant is healthy. Another trick is you can do a trap plant, and I've intentionally done that many times, like especially with uh, my artichokes. I'll intentionally put an artichoke in a less favorable location in order to attract all the aphids to that particular plant, which then attracts all the uh, ladybugs and lacewings and assassin bugs and all the beneficial insects start attracting to my garden, and then they stick around a lot longer than the bad guys do. I like that. We kind of had a thing like that one year where Mike, like, handed me this broccoli stem and it was just completely covered it was like almost like the thing was moving it was so covered in bugs and none of the other plants and so we just let it stay there and it seemed like that was the only plant they attacked and we kind of just called it like a sacrificial broccoli and the rest of them they didn't i didn't see any bugs on any of the other plants yep that's the way to do it it's it's actually it's a cool technique and again you know it works when you start seeing more ladybugs and all the beneficial bugs you know in your garden you're like oh yay because they do they stick around longer you want the beneficials to come in and have enough supply of food that they'll lay eggs and have posterity and then there's your natural management process that one i really like 
That one's. I fun. like the way you really explain that in depth for listeners. So I think they're gonna love that. So, what's your favorite activity to do in the garden then? Oh man, anything. I don't know if there's a favorite. It's kind of like you know, if you if you like ice cream, well, which one's your favorite? I don't know. A little, a scoop of that, a scoop of that. Uh, for me, it. I guess I love just being being in it and seeing the difference it makes. You know, from from the beginning to end, it's one of the only things you can do that's that's fitness oriented. That you can see the you can see the change at the end of your workout. And I, I love to look at gardening as kind of a workout for me. It's it's the garden body. You know, put your garden body on. You don't need a beach body. Get a garden body, and uh, get out there and have some fun with it. And 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 play. I mean, because there's so much that's involved in it. The creation. The 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 action and the production you know it's all in a garden and people spend a lot of money to get just a little bit of each of those things and it's very entertaining if you're if you're awake enough to see it did you go to public school as a kid like where did you get this just passion for learning and doing things and being outdoors and engineering and so I guess the way to look at it, I attended public schools, but I don't think that's where my majority of schooling came from. It came from just life. My, my mom, when I was a little kid, she was a part of a group called Joy School. And if you've ever heard of Joy School, I would highly recommend it. It's one of the best places to get a kid because they teach you how to love learning and, you know, just spontaneous delight and really looking for, for the learning and any opportunity, but from a very positive oriented way. And so as even a little kid, tiny little, you know, toddler, that that was my perspective. I was kind of trained in the art of uh, enjoying learning and never never poo pooing it. And so, even when I was in a public school, I still loved learning so much that I'd be asking questions to the point that the teachers would be a bit annoyed. And uh, <laughs> well, as an t- educator, I've had my share of those kids, but those are always the ones I like the most. <laughs> yeah, they kind of get yeah, me I, in I, trouble I get sometimes because the you know sometimes admin will come in and be like, "Why are you letting that kid read that book or something?" But I I think it's important that kids follow their curiosity and just and a love of learning for sure exactly and i think everybody's got something that brings that out in them there's something that they love there's some topic that's going to draw them into curiosity and i think that's the that's the right that's the right um emotion if you're going to have an emotion that's useful in your life when it comes to learning things it's just curious and what are you naturally curious about and just keep following those curiosities get answers Keep find, asking questions and just keep moving along that path. I think everyone's in di- in, endowed in a sense with a, a sense of curiosity towards the things they likely can make the biggest difference about. And don't, don't take that lightly. Uh, just allow that curiosity to guide your, guide your passion, to guide your inquiry. And, and there's, there's no such thing as bad learning if you're following that kind of path, especially if you see the way that you can serve people in the process. And that's kind of the second step. First, be curious then find a way to help the things you learn turn into service to others because that's that's all working really is it's it's finding something that can be of service to someone else it's such a service that they're willing to pay money in order to receive it and if you love it well it makes the whole process very simple hmm you are definitely like an uh, like a unique individual, um, Justin. <laughs> like it's just I love talking to you. It's just fascinating. It reminds me I did this interview with this guy Sam Lilly, who I was like, you're going to be like the next founder of Amazon. And um, I've had you know your guest number 266, I think, but there's only been a couple of you that have really just like I just feel this just energy coming off of you, which is fantastic. Like I wish you could be our 
secretary of education in the country. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? Um, or the head of the EPA, one of the one of the other. <laughs> but um, just we need so many more people out there with your type of thinking. But I know you're busy, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. So I'll try to like just finish my questions, stay on script. But anyway, what's the best gardening advice you've ever received? Make a routine of it. Make it as easy and, and as much of a routine as it is getting dressed in the morning. If you can do that and make gardening just part of your everyday, not only will it improve your life in so many ways, it also makes this, the, the whole process easy. Once you get it to that kind of a level, it's, it's a mindless activity, which means you can bring any of your challenges to the garden with you and find resolve just in the act of gardening. So I think the best advice is just simply make it a routine find the routine that best fits even if you only have 15 minutes if you can work your system and we have a the three simple three simple steps to gardening success we've got that that's one of the free classes we have online get get to know that one learn about that you will give some examples of different mini routines that you can create that just helps you just make it part of your your daily meditation you know a gift to yourself and it gives back in so many ways uh it's a lot of fun I think you are inspiring so many people today. So how about a favorite tool you like to use? Like if you had to move and could only take one tool with you, what could you not live without? <laughs> I think it's just a, a, a it's a multi-tool. It's a garden multi-tool. It's got a blade on one side. It's got a little forked top. It's got the little sh kind of a shovel end. Um, I think Ames, AMES, I think produces it. It's got a handle that's nice and ergonomic with a hammer head kind of thing on the back. Um, that's the one tool that's always usually in my back pocket or I've got a little sheets for it if I'm not wearing something with pockets, you know, and it, that's with me all the time. And that's about all I need from all my gardening work, all my harvesting. Everything I do is with that one. It's basically it's a it's a, a hybrid Japanese garden knife with a little bit of a spoon to it. Hmm. Maybe you can send us a picture to put in the show notes. That sounds really interesting, <laughs> but super handy. Might be a good one. Yeah, super handy. And it, and again, I can just it, it's got the little measurements on the spoon and all the way up the handle. And so if I need to measure distances and stuff, it's all right there. Depth of my planting, everything's all in that one tool. Wow, that does sound handy. So what's your favorite recipe you like to eat from the garden? Well, favorite recipe, I guess uh, ultra fresh. You know, my favorite salad is the one that we do in our garden. We literally just set up a table between... Uh, two raised beds that we have some benches that we've built onto it and you just reach back and you grab the parts you want you know you just eat the leaves directly right there no salad dressing or nothing you just reach back i guess it, is that a recipe does that count sure <laughs> how about do you have a favorite internet resource is there anywhere you go to surf on the web to get information well, actually, at this point now, I literally end up searching my own website to remind myself of things, um, I do which that is kind too. of weird. I totally understand. Because actually, I was like <laughs> talking to a friend of mine the other day. I'm like, how do you not have a search bar on your website? I was like, that's the place I go to the most to like find links or like, what did this person tell me about how to pick strawberries or to, you know, deal with tomato problems or like I'm always searching my website so I can totally relate. And yeah, your website so looks like it has tons of information. Yeah, there's a lot in there. And if I don't have a search bar, please let me know. I'll have to talk to my team and make sure we've got one. I'm pretty sure there's yeah, a search bar in there website. now. Okay, no, cool. Somebody else, this friend of mine who I was trying to find a picture of her to put in the show notes. Um, 
How about a free reading material? Like, is there a book or a magazine or a blog or a website you can recommend? Hmm. See, right now, I guess when it comes to my gardening stuff, um, the one of my favorite books that's kind of helped me a lot recently, it's actually called Temple Square Gardening. And it has a lot to do with the theories of creating something to look natural, but also like a botanical garden, making it look amazing. And it, it comes from these... Uh, these temple gardens that have been done for for decades and decades, and it's just research based on that. I actually met one of the one of the authors recently and stuff too, and so I was able to kind of glean from him. But the way that book is formatted, it's just really neat on how you can actually. We do it now with edibles, but Temple Square Gardening is actually a really cool book. Uh, I haven't heard of that. That sounds great. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of an obscure book. I don't even know. I, it. I found it, uh, I don't think it's in print anymore, but I think it's still uh, available for purchase. We, we found it on Amazon. Ooh. Can I ask you a question? Like with all your teaching, do you have like one of the problems I've been coming up with a lot is like people not wanting to compost because they think it's too messy or it's too difficult. Like do you, have, do you ever have that problem with people? Oh yeah, I mean a lot of concerns about it. Oh, it's going to attract rats. Yeah. And it's going to attract all these animals, and they're all concerned about all oh, the bugs. Oh my goodness, yeah, yeah bugs, raccoons flies. are going to attack my. I'm like, well, you're just doing it wrong. You know, if you do it right, it, it, it's not a messy process. It doesn't even have to be a hard process. Um, I mean, it can be hard if you'd like it to be. I mean, we've we've got a technique you can compost anything within 16 days if you run a, a certain pattern. One of our our certified contractors actually was playing with composting techniques and he got it down to a 16-day science um, but that was a lot of work now I've got systems in my yard where I really just add things to it and all I have to do is shovel things off out the out of the bottom of it and that's it and it stays moist enough it stays it breaks down fast enough that I've got good product at the bottom I can put the fresh stuff in at the top and it's layered and that's part of the thing it's there's a recipe I mean you were talking about recipes there's a recipe for for your garden and the type of waste you have. In the mastery program, we actually teach a whole section just on composting and how to define your specific recipe for the waste that you're producing. So it, it takes a little bit of tracking what, you're, what, you're, what waste you're producing, what types of trash you're producing, how to classify it, and then to, then to create your recipe that creates the optimal breakdown rate. And uh, again, we put that in the, the mastery program. It's one of the courses that we have. It's one of the electives within the whole system, one of the many, many videos in there. Um, but yeah, once you get it dialed in, it's, it's a very simple process and you don't have to go and buy more bags of, of stuff at the, at the store to get your soil right. You just can use your own stuff on site. I hear you. Uh, well, cool. I'm glad you said that because I seem to get that question a lot this summer and like that course I was telling you, like my first chapter is all about healthy soil starts at home. So, um, and just awesome. building healthy soil. But some people are like, I've told me, they're like, don't start your course out with compost. It's too complicated. It's too dirty. It's too messy. <laughs> and I'm like, but whatever. Uh, anyway, if, do you have any business advice? I mean, you seem like this extraordinary businessman, like for listeners to like maybe how to start selling extra produce or get started in like, um, some kind of gardening business or well, we do. I mean, if you do a search for the, the seven ways to garden to get paid, it's a free course that we offer out there. And, and I do. I go into some details about how to set up these little business models, like what are your revenue sources and how to focus on, on just a couple to get yourself started. And it's going to be based on what you enjoy doing most. And so it'll be easier for you. But when it comes to selling your produce locally, 
the, the first clients that are probably your, your easiest ones to get to are, are going to be your neighbors. The next group is, is finding a privately owned grocery store. And if you've got enough produce that you can regularly have a little space in their grocery store, that's one of the ways that we started selling was through a privately owned grocer. And we had our own little section and it was all grown just by us. And that was kind of fun. And then restaurants can be another cool source if you can find the one thing they need that no one else grows. And a lot of it is just asking questions. What do you want me to grow for you? I love to grow stuff. What do you want me to grow for you? And there's one of your first buyers. And now you're starting to grow for them. And in effect, you're creating your own community-supported agriculture. You're inquiring of the community what they want. You're getting them to invest in that in a sense. And in many cases, that's one of the easiest ways to do it as well because they'll pay in advance for the stuff that you're growing if you can prove, and obviously they can trust you, that you can grow what you say you can grow. So there's some little tidbits there, but I'd definitely check out the seven ways to garden and get paid because it's, it helps you figure out what's your first place to start. And for all of us, it's a little bit different, and that's why we made that course is so you can really self-align with what's the modality that's your easiest one to start with and then expand from there. Excellent. I think like just everything you said is going to help listeners. So I'm sure they're going to go check out that course. I know I'm going to go check it out because that's where we struggle yeah. is trying to go from my husband's goal has been to grow as much of our own food as we can. And then we're trying to kind of like get into the market business. So, and I have seen little sections in local supermarkets that, you know, they'll have like a little section there that says this came from so yada yada farm. Yeah. So, Okay, well, here's... You can be you can be the next yada yada farm, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's my final question. It's kind of a doozy, but Justin, if there's one change you'd like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or a project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? Wow, that is a big question. Yeah. Um, you're going to have a great answer. I can tell. (laughs) Well, one of the major things that I've seen is missing is, is a perspective on localized food economy, truly local. Um, and that that's one of the problems we've been trying to solve with our new hub approach where, where the food literally only comes within 15 miles of its sale point. And that perspective doesn't exist right now. The, the minimum it's like, it's, it's more like 500 miles is about the smallest, food sourcing, what they consider local is 500 miles, and that's a national average. If that were at 15 miles, that changes how everything works. It improves how all food can be integrated into the local landscapes, and so it's integrated and it's much more stable. There's, we won't end up having issues where you, you know, salmonella breakout with, with romaine lettuce knocks out all romaine lettuce sales across the entire country. That's ridiculous. I think so, too. And the only reason that occurs is because people don't know where their food came from. And so to be safe, they have to shut it all off. And that uh, that's a huge risk to everybody. So I think a truly localized food system, 15-mile radius rather than 500-mile, um, and I think that that'll make the biggest difference for everybody. Just, just having that perspective will shift how people are growing, what they're growing, and what they're willing to buy and and looking for where it comes from. I think that, that kind of shifts things. So it's really a shift in perspective, I think, is all we're looking for. But how would that work? I mean, you couldn't get all of your food in a 15-mile radius, do you think? Well, you could. I mean, we, we've been proving out the model here in the Phoenix area. Um, obviously, we got a little bit different growing, but 
Well, what ends up happening is that people that shifts the perspective to look at the seasonality as well as looking at alternative means of growing things. Like we do a lot of indoor growing and, and hydroponic or aquaponic systems. I love aquaponic systems and growing those indoors, making a beautiful fish tank with some awesome fish in it. But then that the filtration system is a wall garden, you know, doing stuff like that. That's awesome and very productive even through winter months or extreme heat months. And so I think it's totally viable. And then what I also do is it would certainly decrease the amount of overweight scenarios we have, I think, in the world as well, because people are being more conscious in what they're bringing into their bodies. And uh, so those kind of things work as well. And we don't want it to happen. But if a major catastrophe happened again, the the and the the shipping system shut down, like here in Phoenix, there's only a four day food supply in the Phoenix market to be able to supply the people that live here. And so it would either you're, you're going to have to shift to it and choose to start living more locally and more seasonally, or you might be forced to it just by the nature of, the, of a mass system that could easily break down on you. Wow. See what I mean by you're a data person? How many people know what how many day food supply is in their area? That's... Um, yeah. I always the like... Data miner, whenever people, I'm always calcing stuff. <laughs> whenever people talk to me about aquaponics, I always see like our supermarkets becoming like that. Like the fish will be like, and the instead of be like you grabbing lettuce, you're going to like, there's going to be like a market produce guy standing there. And instead of them like putting it on the shelves, they're going to be like cutting the lettuce for you right there or like picking the vegetable. Like I, I just, there's something about aquaponics wow. that I can visualize grocery stores. Yeah, that are like gardens, that would be awesome. you know, like on top of the fish yeah. tanks. And instead of people, I don't know. I just, I see that someday in the future. Well, if any of you are ever in Scottsdale, Arizona, go to Sky Song. If you go to Sky Song in Scottsdale, all the Sky Song restaurants are part of us. It's, it's what we do out here. And you'll be able to see some examples of that exact kind of thing because that's what we're doing. Really? And, you know, we've got some rooftop gardens that we're going to be installing in the next month or so. And then we've also got these wall gardens with that aquaponic kind of thing. And so they literally can, they'll be able to look through a window and see exactly where their food came from. Excellent. Uh, so just like my last thing is just, do you have an inspirational tip or quote to help motivate listeners to reach into the dirt and start their own garden? I can't imagine anything you haven't said today already. Isn't going to inspire people because <laughs> you're so energetic. Well, one that I love, uh, whatever you believe you can or think you can begin it. Begin it now. Boldness has genius and power and magic in it. The moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. And all manner of things or material assistance moves in one favor that one would never otherwise would have dreamed would come their way. So whatever you can do or believe you can, begin it now. Did you just make that or is that from like some famous book or something? Oh, it's a it's a quote. It's uh, from a guy that trying to remember the name of the guy because it was a it was he was quoting Goethe so uh, Johann Wolfgang Goethe this German poet from Faust but it was a uh, a mountain climber from I believe from Scotland so it's a Scottish mountain climber is actually quoting Goethe as people were asking him how did he decide to do these big mountain climbs and that was what he ended up saying Justin, I can't thank you enough for spending this time with us this morning and sharing your passion and knowledge and just incredible everything that you shared with us this morning. And I definitely get encouraged listeners, please go to his website and check out his videos and join one of his classes and um, just tell listeners what your website is again. It's agriscaping.com. Pretty easy to find. 
cool. Thanks so much, Justin, for sharing with us today. And you have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks, Jackie. Have a great day. Hey, everyone. So I just got off the phone with Justin Rohner, and I forgot to ask him. Um, I meant to ask during the interview, where did he get this really cool Kale Yeah t-shirt he's wearing? Um, and they make them and sell them on their website. So if you want a cool Kale Yeah t-shirt, just another reason to go to agriscaping.com. It's A-G-R-I-S-C-A-P-I-N-G. Freegardencourse.com. Mike and I have developed some lessons to help you create your very own organic oasis. We'll guide you through the steps to build your perfect natural landscape, an edible earth-friendly yard, a sustainable deep bed garden, or even start a small profitable market farm. We'll show you how to save time, lower your produce bill, collect usable data, eat healthy nutritious food with minimal labor, Um, Use the most effective and efficient production methods currently being used in backyard gardens as well as market farms and maybe even help you find some profitable markets. We've designed it to save you time, lower your produce bill, and help you eat healthy, nutritious food. Um, There's checklists, there's outside reading, video assignments. Uh, You can join the online Facebook community where there's lots of people from around the world to help you get your garden started today. So remember, freegardencourse.com. Thank you for listening to the Organic Gardener podcast. I'd like to encourage you to visit our website at organicgardenerpodcast.com. That's just organicgardenerpodcast.com. And it will link right to the show notes and all that we've talked about on today's show. If you like what you've heard today, we'd love it if you would head over to iTunes and give us a hopefully five-star review. It really helps us get found and share the knowledge with other listeners. Thanks again for listening and remember to grow.